0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Chit Heads. My guest today is Onika Mays. Onika transitioned to yoga and meditation from a career in corporate retail over 10 years ago. Onika used that experience to support social justice nonprofits and teach meditation and yoga inside jails. As training director at Liberation Prison Yoga, she co-facilitated trainings with teachers and practitioners interested in serving incarcerated populations. As director of operations of Transformation Yoga Project, she supported a team that has served over 10,000 people and leads yoga teacher trainings inside prisons. Today, Onika is the mindfulness coach at Rikers Island and facilitates workshops around cultivating resilience and compassion through meditation and other mindfulness practices. At Rikers, she works one-on-one with incarcerated individuals. She believes that meditation and mindfulness practices can forge a path to freedom and build resilience. Onika is passionate about supporting teachers and leaders who bring peace and healing to queer, trans, intersex people of color and folks impacted by the incarceration and its aftermath. So it's very nice to see your face again today, Onika. Thank um, you. This is our second attempt at a recording. <laughs> And failed the Skype platform. Um, this is an unofficial promotion of Zoom as a technology. Um, so last year, Onika Mays and I, uh, along with Margarita Tosado, got together and spoke online uh, for an online panel on the future of the yoga teacher. And in that particular panel, we were speaking about the subject of the yoga teacher as activist, So I wanted to start sort of on the heels of that discussion by asking a question that I asked uh, Onika a year ago, which is on um, the status of yoga as activism. So Onika, do you see yoga as intrinsically um, a form of activism or something else?
1: I do think yoga uh, and and a lot of mindfulness mindfulness practices are definitely a form of activism when you put them in a context of freedom and agency. Mm -hmm. Um, I think certainly there there are some practitioners and teachers of yoga who teach yoga as a physical activity and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, But I think if you are someone who's in service work or who is doing activist work, when you talk about giving people tools to have agency over how they move in a world, particularly in a world that doesn't accept who they are, um, you, are talking about, you are talking about activism. You are talking about revolution. I think whenever you're talking about a, a, a structure and any sort of systemic ism that's happening and give that person a tool to take care of themselves and move in the world in a way that's freeing for them, um, yeah, that's activism.
0: Mm. So when did you uh, come to yoga practice? And I'm, I'm assuming, you know, in your own kind of history with the practice, it didn't start as a kind of form of activism for you in the way that it has today. So I'm curious about your story um, with yoga and how you found the practice.
1: Yeah, it started as stress reduction when I mm. was working um, at Barnes and Noble, actually, and a friend who was in Ashtangi, her husband's in Ashtangi. Mm. Um, they both they both uh well she suggested that i might enjoy it and she was right i but i think i wasn't really committed Mm -hmm. um to the practice i wasn't ready to to dive into it and and not that everybody who does need to dive into it um needs to dive into it but i felt something change in me and i think that's that that spark that started to happen was a little scary um i was I was still young at the time. I was I was in my mid-20s, I think, uh, mid to late 20s. And the idea of committing to this practice where I was going to fully embody parts of myself was really scary. There were still things that I needed to work through that I wasn't ready to work through. Mm. Um, yeah. So scary,
0: a- scary in the sense that you might have encountered, you you might have been forced at that juncture to, to face things in your life that you weren't ready to face. Is that why it was
1: Yeah. I think that's part of it. Definitely. I also think it was just the idea of moving through the world, feeling comfortable in my own skin as Mm. a woman of color, as somebody who was queer, as somebody who maybe wanted to do something different and didn't know what that was. The idea of being vulnerable was still not something that, um, I was ready to accept. I was still feeling very guarded and, and defensive. Mm. Um, and you know, cut to many years later, right before I turned 40, um, I changed my whole life and sort of walked away from my career and was going to try to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up and found myself back on a yoga mat as so many people do. Right. It's like, yeah. you have this breakdown and you, I went to my mat and started to figure things out and felt really um, blessed that I was able to teach so many classes and thought that I should give back in ways that maybe I didn't give back in my first career. Mm. So that led me to thinking about different avenues and through, I think, support of friends and family, one of them suggested, um, what about incarcerated folks? Because it's in our background, social justice and activism. Um, And I remember the first time that I showed up at Rikers and knew this was something I was going to do
0: um,
1: for a really long time.
0: Mm. So I'm curious about, you know, what was perhaps the experience of you kind of you know your experience basically in a mostly white yoga studio like i imagine you probably reflected at an early point on the fact that you are one of the few people of color in the room and i'm I'm mm-hmm. curious if if you ever had some critical reflections of the on that early on and sort of what your line of thought was related to that
1: you know early on i don't think i saw it as critically as i did years later after becoming a teacher. But I will say, I know I felt that way because it took me two years to even go to a yoga studio. Mm. I was doing yoga, um, really dating myself here, on like videotapes and and VHS, (laughs) VHS, Rodney Yee, and DVDs. And I think that it took a long time for me to feel brave enough to actually say like, you know what, I'm gonna go to a studio. I was fortunate enough to go to a studio that felt really comfortable and warm, which I think is really great and doesn't happen to so many people who don't feel comfortable. But I did. And I was really lucky and ended up teaching at that studio for many, many years.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that it it sort of occurred to me while I was watching the panel series that you did or the panel discussion you did on forgiveness, which was a beautiful Mm -hmm. panel, really some uh, lovely things, uh, very insightful things being said both by you and, and the other people in the panel. Uh, but it seems like, you know, in, in your response to issues around racism there, that your contemplative practices have, have shift your, shifted your relationship with it in some way uh, away from a kind of what you describe as an attachment to anger. And so I'm, I'm, you know, as a way of getting into, uh, you know, your decision around, um, uh, uh, working at Rikers and, and, and having this be a part of your own sadhana. Um, uh, can you talk a little bit about the way in which your contemplative practices have, have molded you or have yeah. provided a different kind of, uh, spaciousness with which, from which to navigate these issues?
1: Mm-hmm. You know, it's so funny. This is always such a, uh, like a triggery thing for me, even though it's still like, it, it's, it's who I am. And I think, um, when I started to embrace all kinds of meditation and mindfulness, but specifically metta uh, Mm -hmm. loving kindness shifted a lot for me. I used to think of activism in terms of how I was working against an oppressive structure. And while that hasn't changed Mm -hmm. a lot of the validation, I think I subconsciously sought from, Um, from white supremacy, like see me, validate me, do all of these things. When I began to embrace Meta that see me was turned inside and seeing myself. And then I was able to unhook from some dangerous narratives that, that exist when you're talking about any sort of oppressive structure. And that's really freeing. Mm. It's really freeing because I think for a lot of times I felt like I was banging up against this door, wanting to be seen, wanting to be heard. And while I still want to be seen and heard, there isn't so much weight on this idea that it, if it doesn't come, I somehow won't be validated. Yeah. And when I embrace a practice of compassion, of loving myself, it actually allows me to move in the way world very differently and feeling much more connected.
0: Mm. So what would you say then to maybe someone who would rebut that the anger or staying connected to that anger is sort of the only way that things are going to move in a progressive direction because i feel like there i mean that seems to be you know what you're saying is it seems to be a very enlightened way of looking at things but it seems like we're still in this sort of like um you know what you describe as a shame and blame cycle Mm -hmm. uh Mm -hmm. where people just want to yell at each other and so Mm -hmm. how do we how do we um hold space for that you know that stepping back for ourselves while still retaining the commitment to the change.
1: You know, I think anger is righteous. I think it's, Mm -hmm. I think it's a necessary part of how we move on whatever our path is. And um, I think my anger was really necessary and I think Mm -hmm. it still can be necessary, but it isn't the only way that I think that I can create change. Mm -hmm. And, and I think for folks who Think that their anger is the way that they need to move right now, then that's something that they need to do. And I think that also goes back to my practice. Right. Before my practice was, you have you have to do this, you right. have to move in this way, you have to change. And I felt a lot more liberated when I could focus on loving myself unconditionally. Moving through anger, I, I had to move through anger to get there. Um, and I, you know, I still get angry. I work with so many so many people that I work with are like you don't seem like you ever get angry. I'm like, no, I mean, <laughs> of course I fucking get mad. Who doesn't? Yeah, I mean, yeah. that, that's just life. Yeah. Um, but it's not the only thing that that defines me. And for a long time, for me, it did. Mm-hmm. Um, being angry was a way to, to fire myself up. I can be passionate about love mm-hmm. and not in some sort of hokey way where let's all just hold hands and sing Kumbaya. Yeah. But love can also be righteous love can also inspire action and i feel like that is a more effective way for me to move through this work it mm. was very exhausting for me to constantly be pushing against something i, I found myself very tired a lot
0: yeah well and you describe uh, on the panel that previous kind of um Way of approaching these issues stemmed from your own experience being raised in a family. Was, somebody in your family was in the Black Panther movement. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, my grandfather was a senior advisor for the Black Panthers in wow. the city, and he was a union organizer um, for nurses, uh, health workers union, Union Eleven Ninety Nine, um, in Hartford, Connecticut. So, and kind of like a professional Robberouser. <laughs> yeah. um, And so the idea of fighting was very important. And fighting is important, but I think fighting has taken a different shape for me. And it's fighting for myself and fighting for my own joy and freedom and celebration so other things can emerge, so I can find other ways to move through the world. I think when I was holding on to a lot of anger, it was sort of just this one track that I was moving down and it was all about battling and all about fighting and all about aggression. But when I started to embrace the idea of compassion, um, I've been reading Emergence Strategy as well. I don't know if you've heard of that by Adrienne Marie Brown where we talk about, she talks about this idea of emergence where things can evolve naturally and sort of spread and looking to patterns in nature um, to find ways for social change. And I think that's what started to um, change. I think I think I used to think of activism as one track. Mm-hmm. And when I started to think about love and compassion, it gives you so much more space to think about different ways to move and change and connect with people, people who you want to work with, people who will be leaders beside you, um, people that you're looking to serve. Um, and it op- it opened up for me more ways to think about how I can affect change and and my sphere. Mm,
0: mm. So can we push this idea of emergence a little bit more because it's very interesting. Uh-huh. So the idea uh, that you're contrasting it with, so the idea that there is only kind of one way to do activism that's been laid down by sort of you know the wise activists of old or mm-hmm. whatever that means. And right. then so is the idea that that um, the uh, the activism would emerge from a certain kind of context of relationships is that the idea or am i missing yeah
1: it? it's it's relationships it's community it's mm-hmm. even looking to the idea adrian marie brown was has been inspired by so many various people and also a lot by octavia butler mm. around um the idea of communion and community and ancestors um and ways that we move through the world and nature and it doesn't necessarily always have to be this this general hierarchy and there can be little hierarchies you know she she talks about this idea of um she's not really great at you know financial things and so when you when you're doing something maybe you find somebody to do that and so it's this idea of how can we how can we find ways to work together rather than one person at the top who does this message and maybe does all of the you know the fighting or the change, rather than allowing things to spring up as they spring up naturally to inspire the way that you might want to make a change in the world.
0: Mm -hmm. So we're talking about more of a kind of the swarm gives rise to the method rather than the kind of messianic method where there is some sort of great leader that is leading the whole thing.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah.
0: So tell, tell me a little bit about um, Liberation Prison Yoga and how you've mm-hmm. got connected to working with um, uh, communities in incarceration.
1: Yeah, so I started with Liberation Prison Yoga uh, several years ago. And I reached out to Annika Lucas. I googled you know, working yoga in jail. And her name came up. And mm-hmm. she was starting Liberation Prison Yoga. She had been doing it for a little bit over a year. Um, and so we met and talked and, um, had an amazing conversation about the work that she was doing. And she has an incredible story around trauma wow. and service work. And, um, I, it sort of just grew from there. So I started teaching and then I, I have a background from my, you know, my previous career in doing training. So I started to co-facilitate trainings, um, and working with new teachers who were starting. Um, and it was, it's it really became clear that this was something that I wanted to keep doing. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: yeah. And it was, a, it was an amazing, it was an amazing experience. Mm. And also at the same time, I started working with transformation yoga project and sort of tapping into a business end of the work that I'd done before helping a nonprofit sort of shape where they were going. Cause they were on the, they're, they were already exploding and are doing wonderful things in the Philadelphia area. And, um, Rikers uh, Correctional Health Service and Rikers decided that they wanted to create a wellness program um, for folks who are incarcerated and do a pilot. And so because of the work that I had already been doing at Rikers, I was asked to see if I wanted to interview for this full-time role of teaching meditation inside. Um, and, and now you're so teaching is,
0: full-time in the, in. Yeah, the, that's yeah. incredible. Wow.
1: And that's like this emergence, right? Like this yeah. sort of naturally organic growing thing that You start working one way, collectively work together, and other things sort of spring forth. It's not anything I would have planned, but couldn't be more thrilled that this is where I've ended up.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, let's talk about kind of some of the common, or what you would say are the sort of unique challenges that are faced by those uh, in incarceration Mm -hmm. that yoga and mindfulness can address. Mm -hmm
1: you know folks who are incarcerated whether it's their first time or whether they've been incarcerated before there's an adjustment it's called it's it's actually called adjustment disorder the idea of being in a place where you aren't free mm-hmm. um as very anxiety provoking um there's stress that happens with that you can't sleep there's um feeling sad and symptoms of depression and it can be um really, really hard, harder in ways that I don't think that people can imagine that you go from moving exactly how you want to being told when to wake up, to shower, you know, limited time with your family, with your family on the phone or visiting hours. It is a huge shift in how you're moving through the world. So things like mindfulness, things like yoga and different movement practices give people a chance to get embodied um it's it's very easy to want to completely separate from your experience of being inside you know who wants to think that you know here i am in jail um so these practices allow for people to get embodied and at the same time work to help themselves relieve stress to to find some kind of sleep and to manage a lot of the the anxiety that comes up and feelings of anxiousness when when you are incarcerated
0: Mm -hmm. So what are the, some of the things that you've seen, some of the impact that you've seen um, as a result of bringing these practices into that setting?
1: You know, a lot of what I, I, I see is really just the idea that people are taking time for themselves mm-hmm. and, and, and sometimes for the very first time, taking a breath, um, taking a deep, deep inhale or exhale, or telling themselves that it's okay to love themselves completely, right? Mm. That whole idea of loving every part of yourself um, is is really freeing. Um, I think one of the unexpected things that I found, other than some of the the maybe more obvious things that people can sleep better or more relaxed, right. or is the idea that there is somebody, I, I'm not a therapist, I'm not a social worker, I'm not a doctor, um, but somebody who's a source of support and who sees them Mm -hmm. um that has been i think the biggest thing that i i have seen and connected with that people sometimes just they come to meditation because meditation is helpful but also just like i get to get out of the chaos for just a moment and there's somebody who's going to look me in the eye without Mm -hmm. any judgment and and beyond that with compassion and that's a big deal Mm -hmm. that's a really big deal And it's a big deal for folks who are in that situation. It's a big deal for folks who might not have ever seen that before. And it's even a big deal for folks who have support systems on the outside that they're so desperate to connect with that they can't. So this is a place where I think they get that too. Mm.
0: So I'm I'm imagining that those who are listening who are maybe interested in doing this kind of work have mm-hmm. you know uh, uh, the basic question of whether or not you ever feel unsafe or have felt unsafe in that environment has that ever mm-hmm. happened have you ever had an experience like that
1: No I don't I, mm-hmm. I I I haven't felt unsafe I haven't felt unsafe with people that I work with it is it, you know it's jail so things do, things do happen um yeah but i've never felt like oh this is too dangerous this isn't something that that i should be doing yeah. um i think it's unreasonable to think that you know it's like an amusement park and that nothing could happen <laughs> um but i but today day think, at the
0: yeah. carnival yeah
1: right yeah but i think i think knowing where you are and talking to people like i think sometimes there are these ideas that people who are incarcerated are somehow different than mm. the people who are doing the work. And the truth is like, they're not. Yeah. And I think that's the number one thing that when people you're not asking me questions that I haven't heard, you know, like yeah. people are like always ask the number one thing is how do they receive it? Um, yeah. And the, they is like a very different thing. And it's not, right. it's not said in some malicious way, but once we say the word incarceration, there's a stigma. So there's an assumption that this person is bad or different and therefore dangerous.
0: Um,
1: And so many of the folks who are incarcerated in jails, um, there are bail issues that have happened. Um, There's issues around addiction that folks are struggling with or trauma or mental illness. And even when there aren't, and there's folks who are there for things that have, you know, that are pretty serious. I think the idea is that, people all need healing practices those Mm -hmm. more than other folks who maybe haven't had those kinds of traumas happen in their life yeah um so it's a pretty powerful experience and Mm. there's some people who you know have who come down and try it and don't like it um and then there's people who come every week and who want to come more than one day a week Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. so you know speaking about that um that kind of um, pattern of, of othering the people who are incarcerated. Mm -hmm. Do you see that? Like, how does that live in their body? Because anytime, you know, I imagine when you become recognized as this, you know, criminal or other within society who is like bad and, you know, how does that become embodied? Like, do you, do you see that very viscerally in the people that you work with?
1: Yeah, there's tension, there's, Mm -hmm. there's anger, there's irritation, there's, you know, there's quick reactions, there's defensiveness and and always, there's also depression and sort of isolation and, and and physically pulling yourself in and not wanting to engage or respond. And there's a lot of sadness, um, that you see, and it comes out in different ways. And, And I think that's a big part of why violence ends up happening. People are reacting not necessarily to some, you know, perceived slight that took place. Um, but it's a combination of all of the things that have taken place where somebody is incarcerated. Um, you know, I think we know, or, or maybe for those who are, who um, are, are listening, don't know a lot of the folks who are incarcerated are black and Brown. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of those folks um, come from areas that, that don't have a lot of money and haven't had traditional community support that you might see in other kinds of neighborhoods. So you're talking about areas uh, where, schools don't have the proper support that they need you have teachers who are passionate but you don't have enough and then the community policing that's supposed to happen isn't community policing um, but it's more police state your hospitals aren't the same you don't have the same sorts of community centers or resources and and then you may have you're experiencing more violence and more other kinds of trauma so when you get into trouble you already have all of that behind you and there aren't there haven't been interventions along the way to get you to a place where this is you know where you get to jail and rehabilitation isn't something that that happens so easily
0: yeah so what does a kind of standard um practice look like Mm -hmm. in in the Mm -hmm. context of a prison you know i know i was reading one of your articles that you wrote where you were talking about the way in which you had to kind of rethink the structure of a class based on mm-hmm. your experience in this setting mm-hmm. rather than kind of imposing a certain archetype of a class on these people you had to kind of learn with the bodies in the room. And mm-hmm. so what, what, you know, what's the difference between like um, a class in that kind of a set in the setting of you know, a prison versus mm-hmm. what you would see at your sort of you know, run of the mill yoga studio downtown? So,
1: yeah, um, there's a couple of things. I think when you're talking about a class inside um, a correctional facility or even um, uh, a rehab facility, the idea that everybody has to follow the sequence that the teacher is teaching flies out of the window. Yeah. Um, it does become necessary that teachers have lots of tools to draw on because we're talking about invitational language and choice. So you may have somebody who's doing one thing and somebody else who's doing another thing. Um, And it's encouraged. Um, You may have folks who don't want to do anything at all and are just there to experience the idea of being in a class. Um, There's lots of conversation that happens. I think that's one of the biggest things that's very different, that people are talking and asking questions, sometimes even talking to people who are behind them who aren't even taking class. Um, So it's sort of a, it may look very chaotic from the outside if you were used to a yoga studio class, (laughs) But it's actually sort of a beautiful experience where people are just gathered together, doing what feels good for them in the moment. Um, That same thing happens working one-on-one when I'm doing sessions. So you're talking about not a session. There's not a prescription, right? So somebody comes, you come see me. And we talk about how you're feeling right in that moment. And Mm -hmm. maybe you want to do some breathing. Maybe it's some movement. Maybe it's, you know, I have a giant yoga mat, like a six by foot, six by six foot yoga mat in my office, and maybe it's rolling around. Um, Maybe we do some sound meditation and listening to rain or the sounds of waves. Um, Maybe it's a conversational body scan where we just talk about where are you feeling stress right now? And sometimes more importantly, where are you feeling good inside your body right now? So we can find ways to celebrate that. Mm. So much of what we talk about is around Mm. trauma and pain, but there are places and spaces for celebration and joy through Mm. this work as well. Yeah. Because that's, that's what resilient, that's what resilience is. It's not so much. I was incarcerated. It's I was incarcerated and not, but, but, and I'm going to find ways to thrive and I can find places where I can smile and be compassionate and find love.
0: I really, um, I really like hearing what you're saying about celebrate, you know, finding places of celebration, because I feel like Mm -hmm. I've been observing this kind of pattern in, you know, yoga teaching, you know, there's always these sort of fads of that, that like somebody starts doing it. And then like everybody, every yoga teacher in New York is suddenly teaching in this way where, where there's a kind of overemphasis on, you know, places of pain or discomfort. And it's all about sort of like Mm -hmm. just staring it into it until it dissolves. And I remember actually, for me personally, I had this experience in therapy where where the therapist actually said, no, don't just stare at that place, you know, connect it to like a neutral place or like a place of joy. And something Mm -hmm. about that relationship Mm -hmm. actually then created this, you know, new neural pathway or whatever you want to call it. Um, Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I I really love that, you know, that, that emphasis on places of celebration. I think it's really beautiful.
1: Mm-hmm. Joy, I think is something that's really overlooked. Yeah. And, and, and I don't know, if, you know, sometimes we think of love as, as being weak, or we talk about this whole idea of compassion as somehow not being as strong as tapping into hardcore pain and trauma. And, and that is important. I am in no way minimizing that. Like, I right. think it's very important. I think it's also equally as important to find places to move forward. Yeah. A lot of times when we're talking about trauma work, it's also single incident trauma. Um, and when you're talking about folks who are queer, when you're talking about people of color, when you're talking about being a woman and a patriarchal society that you're you need you need to love yourself and find places of joy every damn day when you walk outside of the door Mm -hmm. and so if you're constantly you know we don't need to sort of take a look to find where we're in pain because I think any of us could think very quickly the last time that we had some pain happen to us and it's how do we make the container for that even bigger so the trauma's there the pain is there, the healing's there, but the joy is there too. Yeah, um, Because I, I, for me, for me, it's in the joy that I find space to move and make room for mm. some of the hurt that happens.
0: That's beautiful. That's really beautiful. So um, I wanted to go back actually, because there was a follow-up question I had just about anger. and And this is something that just mm-hmm. keeps coming up for me. And because, you know, mm-hmm. I am definitely someone who has, you know, my, my, my own narrative (laughs) surrounding anger. And, uh, and um, and so, you know, I'm wondering what you think, I know that anger is righteous and obviously anger is a necessary component of this process, but I'm wondering if you think that anger is a sustainable resource, not in the sense that like, you know, obviously anger just can, can, you know, it's an endless, you know, there's an endless supply of it, seemingly. But is it sustainable in the sense that it can, like, be the condition for sustainable change? So, you know, and, I'm, and when I'm asking this question, I'm thinking, mm-hmm. you know, anger is obviously an important component of taking things down that need to come down. Mm-hmm. But is mm-hmm. it, does it have an important role in the process of, like, of construction, of, like, building a better world once we've sort of, like, in, you know, in the kind of... um I don't know, in the aftermath of our own, you know, deconstructive process or whatever?
1: I think maybe in the beginning it can, but I think for my, for the teachings that I follow around meditation, um, they are more down a, sort of a Buddhist path. So yeah. um, I, I really do believe in the four immeasurables around compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity, and and loving kindness. Like, those are, those are the things that I feel like are sustainable and are measurable and, and there's an abundance of them. Yeah. Um, for me, I don't think that anger is sustainable. I I think it is something that, that disconnects me from my experience in the world. Um, it can be useful to perhaps bring something up or alert me to an idea that I'm disconnected. Um, but it's not a way that I think can fuel my passion. Mm. Um, I think of uh, Tara Brock and her idea around radical acceptance, mm-hmm. that ang- anger is something that is a part of me, was a part of me, will be a part of me, but it's not all of me, so it can't be for me, the one thing that I focus on to sort of drive you know drive myself forward and anything that I'm doing.
0: Yeah um, yeah. love Tara Brock. Yeah. Uh, spent a long a a big portion of my life listening to those podcasts so Mm -hmm. and still do when i'm when i'm feeling down and out yes (laughs) not there (laughs) not not that there's not a role for those episodes even when Uh you're feeling good but it it seems absolutely yeah it seems to be. it's about
1: balance i think and i think i don't think anything's sustainable i i don't think that happiness is sustainable a a lot of folks that who want to do meditation one-on-one say well i just want to be happy all the time and that does seem to you know why wouldn't you be when you're in a situation like being incarcerated but we talk a lot about well i can't do that like that's not what i do like i'm very upfront i'm like i don't have any sexy solutions to being permanently happy all the time but what we can do is perhaps find ways that you can be okay with not being happy all of the time. And through that, joy starts to arise, you know, like recognizing and letting yourself be angry. I find that we get angrier because we're angry at being angry. We're angry at our anger, right? Mm. But when we let our anger be anger, that again, it's it's ways. How do we give space? How do we make room so things can be as they are? And that allows us to be present.
0: Mm. Mm. All right. So I want to move into a conversation about the million-dollar question of privilege, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because in the in in the panel that we did together, as well as the panel um, that I you know I watched of yours on forgiveness, you said you mm-hmm. say a lot of really interesting things about privilege that I think are important for people to hear. Because I think there seems to be a, a lot of confusion around what it is mm-hmm. and who who has it, and so mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you could just start with a very basic question of what is privilege, and uh, and we'll go from there.
1: Yeah, privilege is an any unearned benefit that you have that allows mm-hmm. you to move through the world um, easier than other folks, and I think unearned is the very key word that people need to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and what also has to come with that understanding is recognizing that society is unfair and that there are certain people who get to move through the world differently than other people. And yeah. it's not because of things that they've done, but it's simply because who they are. Yeah. And so, so privilege for this conversation, um, privilege is around folks who have opportunities that, that are given to them because of who they are. So, you know, you have, you know, really a lottery ticket if you are white and straight and cis um, and male. And if you've had education, um, that can be considered privilege. Um, If you are able-bodied, that can be considered privilege. If you are what society deems as good-looking, that can be considered privilege. So there's lots of things that can be considered privilege. And then there's privileges that we may have and we may not think of ourselves as being or uh, having some privilege. I'm black and queer, but I do have privilege because I came from a household of two parents who are still married. Um, I didn't have to worry about eating a meal or college was assumed. It was assumed I was going to college. It wasn't like an if, or if I could, It you were, I was going to, yeah. that's a privilege. Um, and the fact that if you move through the world in a way that society looks at you, uh, particularly, you know, I'm cis. I have cis privilege there aren't assumptions that people make about me because of how i look Mm -hmm. um and so when we start to talk about what privilege is you could start to have conversations that are more inclusive but i think until you allow yourself to recognize that you may have some privilege and move through the world differently these conversations are very defensive very stilted and what's important is allowing yourself to be soft and do that work when you're recognizing that.
0: yeah, do you have any um, uh, any kind of suggestions for people as they try to kind of understand you know the different aspects of their own privilege, how they can navigate that without without that, what you're you know understandably observing, which is that defensiveness, which I think a lot of people have may partly perhaps because when they first encountered Someone mm-hmm. someone charging them with privilege in some way it was by someone who was yelling at them or, you know, shaming them for having it in some in right. some.
1: Right, right. And you know that this is this is where I think things get tricky and murky because I think there's a piece where folks who have lots of lots of privileges need to understand that people who are coming at them are very angry yeah. and that it may not be about them specifically, but recognizing just like me, this person wants to have the life of, of freedom and, and to be happy. Like people yeah. just want to be happy and not to suffer. And for so long, if they haven't been able to speak up, that's coming up and and making space for that, making room for that and doing homework on your own around around privilege becomes important emotional labor is something that has been talked about a lot lately too the idea that mm. folks with privilege look to folks who don't have privilege to educate them and <laughs> it happens a lot well i don't understand your experience if you just tell me why you're so angry you know you can talk um, and it happens a lot right yeah. it happens a lot so being able to have people talk to and talking to your peer group so like white folks who want to learn about racism there are lots of resources where white folks are unpacking racism where uh men are talking about sexism what this this is these conversations fortunately now are happening all over the place so hopping on the google
0: yeah and can I ask you a follow-up question? Because this actually brings up yeah. something that just happened um, recently, and I'm sure mm-hmm. you know about it, where, because you're mentioning like resources written by white people about race, mm-hmm. um, uh, about racism. And there was an instance where, uh, where this woman wrote this book, I believe, about you know, why white people are uncomfortable about uh, talking about racism. And a, a very well-known um, uh, Black Buddhist teacher came out and, and basically said that she was profiting off of the history of racism in this country, and so okay. I'm curious if you see it that way, or if you have you heard about this particular?
1: I haven't. I haven't okay. heard about this. I can share. Um, it. I can
0: share it with you. I'll sh- I'll send you the yeah. link. Yeah, maybe we can chat yeah. about it sometime.
1: Absolutely, and I think yeah, that is a that is dangerous, right? Like you do get into that murky territory. Um, I I don't think it's always about profiting. I do think that. I have gotten really tired as a black person educating white people on their BS and on their privilege. That gets exhausting for me. It really does. Mm-hmm. Um, I am very glad that there are people who are white who are picking this ball up and running with it. Yeah. yeah. Um, because it's it's exhausting. Um, I think if you are making lots of money off of it and not contributing to organizations that are you know are are also of color. I think that's a way to sort of keep this, like keep things even. That becomes, I think, very important. If you are going to unpack racism, and you're white, that it is very important. If you are making money from it, that you are also giving to organizations that are run by folks who are of color. So you're yeah. supporting that as well. That that's I absolutely. think is re- is very, very, very important. That yeah. you can't just sort of make all this money and be like, this is, you know. This hey. is what- <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like we're talking about racism. Isn't this great? Aren't we doing the right thing because the right thing would be to really start to, to, to dismantle the system. And that means, that means reparations. Yeah. And so I'm going to do this work and I'm also going to give all this money here. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's, that's making the playing field level. That's doing right by being able to take advantage of supremacy for all of
0: these years. mm. What, uh, I'm curious about questions about reparations. What is generally the kind of, like if, we, if, 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 if we're having these conversations and there are, there are things that are presented or created or produced that are then giving back in these various ways as reparations, what, what are the conditions by which we will have perceived a sense of, like when does that egalitarian society Emerge, or when when will we know that it has presented itself?
1: I think we will know when it's presenting itself because I don't think we'll we'll I don't think we'll be having conversations like this. Right. Um. I do. I think it will naturally start to emerge. Mm-hmm. Um. And I think we'll see that same thing um, not just around race, um, but around homophobia, um, yeah. around sexism, um, around poverty. We're, we'll start to see that we don't have to have the same com- conversations that we're having now. I think race is definitely an easy thing to go to because um, it's the, it's the quickest thing to visibly see. Um, yeah. But, but I think, I think that we have to start having conversations about inclusivity with, with everyone. We, we need reparations for indigenous folks that oh, yeah. isn't a topic of conversation as well because um, yeah. I think that's also really important too like we, we tend to focus just on black folks but indigenous folks um, yeah. are ones who truly need reparations um, as well and, and that's not a conversation you know I, I think that that we have enough or in, in a lot of circles yeah. um, But I, but I think the more that we start having inclusive conversations with everybody sitting at the table and recognizing that we're trying to have everybody sit at the table, particularly if you are the person who built and owned the table, that's when you start to see that things are shifting and changing. Um, I've been thinking a little bit about what you just said before about somebody being very upset about people profiting off of this work. I do think that it is important when white folks start to unpack this work, that they're really educated about it. Like this isn't just something that you can go into blindly. But it does mean that you allow yourself to, um, to educate yourself and to find people that you can talk to who are of color, who are giving you, I don't want to say a nod, but are, are, are really are really sort of saying like, yeah, this makes sense. Like it can't sort of operate in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot of work to unpack your stuff.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Peggy, but I- uh, yeah. Yeah. Go yeah I, and i know I, I, I like the way that you talk about you know privilege being a kind of contextual and relational thing and the and the different aspects of it like you bring up like your you know your educational process for me you know i I certainly know that, I, you know, I can acknowledge that I have the privilege to walk into a grocery store and not be, you know, perceived that I'm going to steal something, which is not extended mm-hmm. to many other people, you know, mm-hmm. uh, many other people in our culture. And then I can also think about, you know, the context of an adoption agency where I would not have the same kind of privilege as a straight couple, you know, if I was to go in there with my, you know, gay partner mm-hmm. and, and, and the way in which, you know, you know a privilege is not so much of a, a kind of like state existential stain but it's something that's operable in different kinds of forms of relationship and I'm not sure if you have any any thoughts further thoughts on that but it just came up as yeah as, um,
1: I think that there there yeah and I think it does come up in different ways and there's some privileges that are bigger than others like whiteness is the biggest privilege that anybody can have totally yeah. um, and and that's a big deal um, you and I driving in a car you have less of a chance of getting pulled over, and if you do yeah. get pulled over, you have less of a chance of being killed than I do. Yeah, um, and that's a privilege. I mean, you know, every time I see a cop or a cop car, I I look. I just it's it's an it's just a reaction. It's mm-hmm. you just take it in, um, and that's not something that a lot of if you're white that you don't have to think about. Yeah. You don't. It's 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 not the same sort of reaction. Um, I think those who are. Straight presenting, ha, you know that's another really big privilege that that mm-hmm. folks have, um, and folks who are cis have a lot of privilege. Yeah. Um, that I do think that's something that needs to be more included in conversations, which we're starting to have. Like I think yeah. we are are starting to talk about what it means to have conversations around gender. Um, but if you're non-binary, um, this world is not for you. Yeah, it's 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 not. And, and that's a that's a big deal. And when we don't have to think about certain things like that's the time that you when somebody starts to talk about something that you're like, I don't ever have to think about that. That's your time to pause.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the answer to the question of privilege is, is it that we want to get like take privileges away or is it that we want to extend privileges? Because I think this is one of those ambiguous points, you know, because it like, for, for example, with, with the context of, in the context of like educational privilege, certainly we would hope to extend the experience of that privilege of being highly educated to, to, uh, you know, to everyone. Um,
1: so, so yeah, so what, that's a little bit different. So what we're talking about when we say privilege, it's not that because I have a college education, I'm more privileged. But a college education allows me access to a world that's different. Right. So that's where the privilege comes in. I see. Um. So that that's what we're talking. That like that's where the privilege gets extended. Um. Not you know it because I have I grew up with both of my parents. I have privilege with that because their their studies around having two parents in a household and having two incomes and and being able to move through the world differently, that gives you sort of a leg up. So what we're talking about is what it looks like to have a leg up. Mm -hmm. And doesn't mean that we extend, you know, education to everybody. Yeah, I mean, our schools are terrible. It's talking about looking at disparities, and having folks first recognize the fact that people get to move through the world differently. That I feel like is the biggest conversation that needs to happen when we start talking about privilege. So many people get defensive. I've worked really hard and people think like, my whole world's gonna be taken away if I start, you know, if I have to think about giving something up. But just by virtue of the fact that you're thinking you have to give somebody up, you are unconsciously acknowledging the fact that you've been stepping on somebody else in order to get that. That's a problem. Yeah, like that's a problem, and you know, it's like that that video of a white guy in an airport who's getting arrested and he's really upset and he's screaming. He said, Why are you treating me like a black person? Oh my, Uh, um, and and it and he and he meant it, it was real, and he was really, really upset. And it's in those moments, in those glimmers, when we have to acknowledge that in some ways, many of us, not all of us, but many of us play a role in oppression. Yeah. And it's not that we can all fix it tomorrow, but until we say, like, yeah, you know what? I don't I don't get in trouble if I walk into a bathroom. Mm-hmm. I don't. And it's not a, a decision that I have to make. I don't have to worry about my safety. Yeah. You know it's important for me to acknowledge that it's important for me to speak up when other people are saying other things against it in order mm. to make the world safer for folks.
0: Mm. Well, that, that video you mentioned is so is powerful not, because it's sort of this like paradoxical mix of like, some, this guy who's obviously a racist, but he's also saying something that is, is basically, you know, an argument for the existence of of disparate experiences you know Mm -hmm. across privilege and Mm -hmm. it's interesting i haven't actually seen that video
1: yeah i'll send it to you you see it happen with shootings right Mm -hmm. when the shooter is black the shooter dies when the shooter is white the shooter is taken into custody without incident yeah um you know there there are things that happen there and and it's not it's not coincidence you know no um but it's when it's when people Start to acknowledge those things that change starts to occur, and right now it is much. It's very scary to say like I might play a role in this, particularly if you're liberal. Like I think a lot of a lot of um, this is very useful for folks who think who think of themselves as being very liberal. So I couldn't possibly. I'm not like that. You yeah. Know? The, the The standard for racism is like burning a cross on a yard, but it's you know that's not so me. Yeah, That's not me, so therefore I'm not racist, but it's the little microaggressions that yeah. we do across all sorts of things. That's what eats away at society.
0: Yeah, I wonder if you have any thoughts on this phenomenon of virtue signaling, which it seems to be, you know, like in in replacement or instead of maybe doing what we might call the kind of harder work of either, either being involved in an organization or some kind of movement, um, people feel satisfied simply to kind of broadcast their their woke ideas on Facebook or instagram mm-hmm. and 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 let that be sort of you know their work for the day um, mm-hmm. in terms of you know in terms of what we're talking about so do you have any thoughts on this phenomenon of like you know just you know broadcasting to other people virtue signaling as I think the term people are using of okay. like of of your sort of progressive mindset
1: you know I think. I think it depends on who you are. You know, I think if you think that you're doing your work for the day, um, then that's just another way to bypass, you know, actually sort of confronting things about yourself. Um, and I think this whole idea that our whole world has just gotten so performative, like, you know, let me show you that I'm a good person. Let me show you that I'm doing the right thing. Um, I think those kinds of things take away from some real good activism work that's happening on social. Um, There are people I can think of Erica Hart, Rachel Cargill. There are some people doing some serious work out there. Adrienne Marie Brown, who uh, wrote Emergent Strategy and the Pleasure Activist. Like I get so much information from the work that they're doing. It is unbelievable. Um, And I think that's really important. I think for folks who think that by, posting every time something happens that they're contributing to a larger cause. I don't think that's really it. Like, I don't think that's the way to do it. I do think practices of looking inward are the way that real change happens, which is the harder work. It's easy to click.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: You know, but did you like it though? Like (laughs) that.
0: How many likes did I get on that pet?
1: Exactly, (laughs) exactly.
0: Do people like what I'm saying on Facebook? (laughs) yeah i mean you know it's it's interesting like just to continue this kind of social um I, you know i i i want to i want to i'm going to write down those names in the show notes i'm going to have um uh, uh, uh my team put that down in the show notes the people you mentioned because i want to direct attention to that because i think you know what people see right is the kind of the angry the angry conversations around things that are happening and mm-hmm. and you know and it's obviously important for the discourse to be happening, and that's what social has provided, right, as a platform for just more discourse, I think we're seeing. But is there, is there something about, like, in your experience, like that lack of an, oh, hi, puppy. Hi. <laughs> for those that can't see, um, which is anybody listening, there's an adorable dog that is licking on Nika's face. Um, <laughs> Obviously recognizing that she needs some love and tenderness right now. <laughs> yeah. So I guess, I guess my, uh, I don't know if I even have a question, but my observation it, this recently mm-hmm. has been like how the lack of a body, you know, um, permits this kind of vitriol and what mm-hmm. it's doing to our ability mm-hmm. to engage in, in public discourse and approach people approach others in a spirit of solidarity.
1: Yeah, you know, um, I think it's, I'm really glad we're having this conversation because I think social can be a wonderful thing and a really dangerous thing when we start talking about causes um, and what our passions are and talking about social justice and things that are happening in the world and creating discourse. In some ways, it's really great. Um, But I also think that it becomes a way that we measure ourselves a lot. Yeah. Um, Am I doing enough? Am I saying enough? And, you know, do I need to be saying more? And this idea of competition, it can really start to eat away at you. Um, And I mean, I have found myself, am I posting enough? Am I writing enough? You know, am am I saying the right things? Is my message being heard when, you know, should the focus just be on the work that I'm doing, right? Like, you know, Is, is that where it should be? And I think, I think when it comes to self-care, it's also important to step away from it. Like, and to do the inside work, like, you know, meditating on Facebook every day, you know, maybe not a great idea. Maybe not, maybe not the way to find yourself, you know, being connected to the world. I think it is a great tool if you feel disconnected. If you are that kid who's in the middle of nowhere and you're queer and you found your community and your people, having those groups can literally be life saving. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. It can be literally life saving. But I think if you find yourself doing distract, you're distracted, you're, mind, you're mindlessly scrolling, you start to find yourself getting so worked up with what's happening inside your phone versus what's happening outside you know those are all signals that maybe some self care needs to happen and we start to need you know i know when i start doing that i need to do some inside work
0: yeah i love that you expressed it that way meditating on facebook because you could sort of you know ask the question of like or, or propose that you're meditating on something. You know, best that it be uh, a conscious choice, like the breath, or you know, mm-hmm. whatever mantra you happen to work with, or whatever the case may be. Because if you're not meditating on one of those that can offer some kind of contemplative illumination or spaciousness, you're going to mm-hmm. be meditating on something else, and something mm-hmm. um, that perhaps will not afford you uh, the privilege of space, <laughs> internal right.
1: space. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, this has been an incredible conversation and, um, I wanted to maybe bring it back to just Mm -hmm. asking the question of how, you know, how does yoga play into all of this? We're talking about privilege. We're talking about, you Mm -hmm. know, engaging, um, consciously with, um, matters that are important today. You know, what is yoga, what is yoga's role in that, in that process of, of encountering and, and um, reconciling ourselves to, you know, whether it be our privilege or our responsibility in the world in, in whatever way we need to engage?
1: You know, I think the practice of yoga gives us a chance to connect with who we are in any given moment. I, I know for me that my, my asana practice is definitely a reflection of what's happening in my life not just when i'm actually moving from from asana to asana but really looking at what i'm thinking when i get super judgy i get judgy you know like <laughs> when i start sort of judging what's happening in the room like i will admit it like it's not a cool thing to admit but i get i get judgy with myself sometimes with people in the class sometimes even with the teacher like i wouldn't have done that like that's a sign i mean and <laughs> i feel like if them. you're Right, I think but I think it's important because what what would happen before there would be this big disconnect and I'd go in this spiral. But when I start doing those things, it's a time for me to be soft with myself. What I would do in the past was like shame myself for being such an asshole and why am I doing that? And that's terrible, Onika. You are better than that. And now I get to say to myself, "Hey, what's go what's going on? Are you okay?" Like are you okay? Like you know when you're judging that There's something that's not right here. So yoga allows space to do that for me. It gives me room to say like, okay, you may not be okay and why not? Do we want to look at it? Do you want to sit? Do you want to move? What kind of practices is going to be right? So you can feel whole and connected, right? Disconnection leads to destruction, harm, violence, you know, being connected allows us to sort of be compassionate with ourselves and other people. And that's the role that I think yoga has.
0: Wow. Well, that's a beautiful note to end on. So I I guess my last question would be, do you have any kind of final, uh, based on what we've talked about, do you feel like anything's been left out or any kind of final um, comments, considerations that you would offer to the listeners?
1: Yeah, I would just, um, I think I'd say, again that is hokey as it may sound and you know what i'm gonna say that no it's not hokey Um, i think through compassionate practices um, we can kind of do anything i do i I really believe that um, that compassion can can change the world
0: yeah yeah So Onika, are there any things coming up that you um, would like to share with the listeners, any kind of workshops you're doing that are open to the public? Maybe there's a, uh, do you do trainings for um, the, the, I mean, I know you're, you're, are are you still working with um, Liberation? No,
1: I'm not with Liberation Prison Yoga or Transformation Yoga Project. Okay. Um, I don't know if Liberation Prison Yoga is doing any trainings coming up. I know that Transformation Yoga Project is doing um, uh, a a youth resilience training that's coming up, so working with youth, um, and that's in Philadelphia. Um, I will send information about that. Um, I will be doing a workshop on July 27th um, with Embodied Philosophy around uh, spiritual practices and oppression, Um, so that's exciting. And people can go to my website to see um, other things that are coming up.
0: Amazing. Yes. So Onika will be giving um, one of seven uh, talks that are happening on um, the relationship between um, marginalization, oppression, privilege, and spirituality. All proceeds of that offering, by the way, go to organizations uh, that benefit and um, uh, work with marginalized communities. And that is starting, yours is on July 27th. Yeah, And that's starting, I believe, the final week of of June um, for those that are interested in the full series. So you'll be able to uh, see Onika's beautiful smiling face as a part of that (laughs) lecture. And if you show up live with her, you can also ask her your own questions and it will be an opportunity for Q&A as well because it's part talk, part Q&A. So thank you so much, Onika. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you.
1: Thank you so much. I loved it. Thank you.